0: Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're closing out this series uh, today. And this uh, sermon series started the Sunday after Easter. And what we've been doing is taking a look at most of the recorded in the Bible appearances of Jesus in the flesh after his resurrection from the dead on Easter. And, And these appearances are so important because first of all, it proved that Jesus rose that the grave could not hold him down and ultimately it provided this feeling for people. It provided hope. It provided hope for that early Christian church. As some of you, most of you know this, but some of you may not, that those early Christians, that first century of uh, uh, Christianity, was likely the most difficult and the hardest from a persecution perspective of any century since. And it was right at the beginning. And so Jesus wanted those early Christians to see and to understand that their their hope in the future wasn't based on some sort of flimsy luck or guess, but instead was a sure, confident hope because many of them saw Jesus die and then actually had a conversation with him after he lived. And those appearances became the foundation, the benchmark, the, the... the boost for that early Christian church to survive all the persecution in the first century. 2,000 years later, the resurrection is still our greatest hope. And I I can't think of a greater emotion or a more impactful feeling than the feeling of hope. For you sports fans— It's that giddy feeling you have at the beginning of every season, whether you're a Steelers fan or a Vikings fan. We all think our team can win the Super Bowl or win the World Series at the beginning because hope can do that for you. Or maybe it's the excitement you feel as you think about possibly asking out that pretty girl or that that handsome boy at school and the excitement that comes around, the, the hope of him or her saying yes to that. Hope can get you through the darkest moments in life. The hope that things will change. How do you think our setup and takedown teams have been getting through the last month or two, right? The hope of things to change. Hope is an amazing feeling and emotion and makes a huge, huge difference. This morning, I just, I want to talk all about hope for you for the future. And what we're going to be talking about in this a bonus edition of Hope Rising is the end of the world. The last day. Jesus return, hope coming back. Now, this topic of the last day, the world being destroyed, Jesus returning, however you think of it or view it, depending on who you are and what your background is, it's something that people have always seemingly been interested in. In fact, in Europe, around 1000 AD, much of Europe was bracing for the world to end. You see, Pope Sylvester said that the world is going to end in 1000 A.D. And so he actually encouraged people to not plant their crops, to not repair their homes, um, to sell their possessions and give them to the poor. The criminals were set free and everyone was encouraged to confess their sins to be ready. And interestingly enough, there's a historian named Frederick Hartens, who kind of wrote his take about December 31st, 999 A.D. So the predominant, predominant, Christian religious leader of the world is telling you that in just a little bit of time, just a few minutes from now, the end of the world is going to be here. And here's what Frederick writes. The midnight mass had been said and a deathly silence fell. The audience awaited. Pope Sylvester said not a word. He seemed lost in prayer. His hands raised to the sky. The clock kept on ticking. A long sigh came from the people, but nothing happened. Like children afraid of the dark, all those in church then lay with their faces to the ground and did not venture to look up. Then suddenly, the clock stopped ticking. And among the congregation, the beginning of a scream of terror began to form in many a throat. And guess what happened next? Nothing happened. (laughs) Nothing happened! And the world did not end. Jesus did not return. The world was not destroyed. And, and here's the question that I have as a pastor. After making a promise like that, where do you go from there? How do you end that service? I know what I do. It's exactly what Pope Sylvester did. Uh, Martin's rights, or Harton's rights, that Pope Sylvester at that point... He said the benediction, that is the blessing, and excused everyone to go home, if they had one left. (laughs) Now we can laugh about this a thousand nineteen years later, right? But this shows you not only the preoccupation that people have with the end of the world and the last day, and I I have it too. I've got questions. I have wonderings. I, I wonder if it's near and all that kind of stuff. But it also, as you read, or we read through those words, it reminds us that one of the predominant feelings that people have about the end is fear. Because it's the unknown. And most of the time, people are fixated on the when or the how. And it strikes fears in their heart. Our first fill-in for today kind of gets to that point. It says the end will bring fear. The end of the world will bring fear to you when the focus is in the wrong place. And so over the years, the the focus tends to be so often on the, the when whether it's the uh, end of the Mayan calendar, 2012, or other things, uh, people so often ask the question, when? Um, but the interesting thing is, the ironic thing is, God says that's the one that we're for sure not to know. Um, Jesus had these words to say in Matthew chapter 24. He wrote, or he spoke, No one knows about that day or that hour, not even the angels in heaven or in his humanity, nor even the Son, but only the Father. And then the other thing that we get so fixated on is the how. How's it going to happen? And yes, there is going to be a destroying of the world as we know it at the end of the world. And people conjecture, will that be a meteor that hits us? Will the sun explode and disintegrate us all? Will the world kind of collapse on itself because of an earthquake or a volcano? The truth of the matter is you don't really need to worry about it because it's not going to affect you. (laughs) But yet when we focus on the when or we focus on the how, our reaction, our thinking about the end of the world and these last days that we tend to be living in is fear. But as you read through Scripture, the Bible doesn't direct us to the when or the how. It directs us to have our minds focused on something else, of the who. Who? It wants our hearts and our minds to be laser focused, not on the when, not on the how of the last day, but on the who. And what do I mean by that? Well, that's what we're going to talk about for the next 15 minutes or so. So at the end of Jesus' life, right before he died, um, he had gathered his disciples together, and uh, one of the disciples named um, John uh, recorded about two or three chapters of different things that Jesus spoke about, another disciple that recorded some of it was the disciple named Matthew. And one of the topics that Jesus discussed was the last day, the day that Jesus would return. Matthew chapter 25, beginning of verse 31, Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes or comes again in glory and all the angels with him, on that last day, he will also sit on his glorious throne. So when we think about Jesus coming to earth, I think so often we focus first and foremost on Christmas, the first time that he came. And it's interesting, there could not be a starker contrast between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. The first time Jesus came, most of the world was oblivious to the fact that anything even happened. The shepherds, who were only you know less than a mile away, needed an angel in the sky to tell them that the Son of God was born in Bethlehem, and they should be at peace. The Magi in the in the East saw a star, and they passed thousands of people along the way who had no idea that anything had happened in Bethlehem until they finally came to the town and found Jesus. And while that seems strange to us, I will say this, that it fits perfectly with Jesus' purpose the first time he came. He came to serve, not to be served. He had a job to do, which included his humbling of himself to be a man and to die. And so the fact that not too many people knew he was born fits perfectly. But the second time he comes, the last day at the end of the world, he is going to bring all of his angels with him, the armies of angels, and there's going to be trumpets, and it's going to be a scene. Not only will all those who are alive see him come on the clouds just as he had left, but as that happens, the Bible tells us that those who have already died and are, their bodies are buried or or even cremated. Those bodies are going to be put back together and the souls are going to be reunited with those bodies so that every person who's ever lived is going to stand and see Jesus return and he will return, next fill in, in power and in glory. It is going to be a scene. And I was trying to think, how do, how do we even get a little bit of a feeling for that? And every illustration I could think of limps. But recently, uh, we had a chance as a family to attend an air show where the Thunderbirds were, and I don't know if you've ever been to a um, a game where there's been a flyover or an air show, maybe like the one we went to. You could be doing something else, but when the Thunderbirds or the Blue Angels or some other jet flies low past you, like it will get your attention. You feel the, abs- you feel the ground kind of shake beneath you, and it is so loud it makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck. This limps, but it's the best I could do with the glory and the power that every single person who's ever lived, those who believed and those who have rejected are going to be forced to take notice of hope returned, living hope, coming back. And then what's going to happen on the last day? Our next verse. All the nations, all people who've ever lived, will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. So remember, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. And I doubt that if he um, was doing his ministry here today, he would have used this analogy. But 2,000 years ago, everyone understood, oh yeah, I know how a farmer goes out and and they separate sheep from goats. Like this is an illustration that stuck with the people who are listening. That Jesus, the good shepherd, is going to come back and he's going to separate sheep from goats. And then then what's going to happen? Verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom, heaven, prepared for you since the creation of the world. Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Now, let's talk about this verse first. If these were the only verses in the entire Bible, I could see how someone might come away thinking that on the last day, you better have a pretty good resume and that when Jesus is separating the sheep from the goats, his people, the sheep, from those who are not his people, the goats, that you better get out your resume and show him all the things because the way Jesus is going to separate people is by the good works that we've done. But the good news is that we have the entire Bible to help us understand this. And there's very clear passages about how we're saved. How about this one that many of you know? For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So how do you explain verses like this? Well, Do you know how apples will show that an apple tree is alive? Or if you're wondering what kind of vine might be growing and grapes come off it, you know that it's a grapevine. What Jesus is saying is by our actions, God sees its proof, its evidence something deeper and more substantial going on in our hearts and our lives. And in fact, if you think that's a little bit, you know, not very strong of a reasoning here, let's go back to verse 34 for a second. Look at the words Jesus uses. He talks nothing about a payment for what you've done on the last day that separates you. He uses words like, you're blessed by my father. The literal Greek word for blessed is A gift that comes out of grace, or an undeserved gift that's been given. He looks at the people on his right, those who have followed, and he says, you guys are getting a gift that you do not deserve. You're blessed. And then one of the other words that he uses, not just here, but in other places, is the word inheritance. Inheritance by nature is not something you earn. It's given freely. That's why you need to be nice to your dad and your mom. It's the whole reason. That's why it's the fourth commandment, so that you get—no, I'm just kidding. Um, But it's something that's given out of grace, out of love. It's given as a gift. These are the words that Jesus uses to describe how on the last day you're going to receive what God has won for you. Now, the interesting thing is that so often when it comes to our confidence for eternity, we tend to want to get out the resume. And whether it's verbally or just subconsciously, that we feel a little bit better about God's liking of us, depending on how good we've been that day or week, or whether we went to church that day or that week, or whatever it might be. Here's what the Bible says. There's there's two types of people. There are perfect people and there are imperfect people. And in the group called the perfect people, we have Jesus and that's it. And in the group called the imperfect people, we have everybody else, including me. People who set goals to change and then don't. People who head into situations at work or at home with the attitude of this is how I'm going to act graciously because I know this situation is going to be difficult and then end up saying or doing the exact things that we had hoped and prayed that we wouldn't do. People who have bad thoughts, people who have bad attitudes, people who don't forgive like they should. And don't love like God is required. And on and on and on. This group is littered with every single person who's ever lived except for Jesus. The imperfect people like you and like me. And here's the thing God is not asking for a long list of good works. You know what he's asking for? He wants the absence of anything bad. That's what he requires. And it's a requirement that you and I could never keep. (laughs) But what would seem to be our greatest, I guess, fear because of that, actually becomes our greatest confidence. Because when all you're left to do is put hope and trust in someone else, there's a confidence that we can have that we would never ever have if it was left up to what I'm going to do today or what I did yesterday or what I'm going to do tomorrow. The greatest hope, the most peaceful for the future people in all the world are people who understand that heaven given to us on the last day or the day that we die was totally a gift given by the accomplishment of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. Now, <laughs> we'd prefer Jesus or God just to maybe, you know, look the other way to our sin. Why doesn't he just do that? Why doesn't he just look the other way? Why do there need to be payment? The reason is because God is holy and just. He's loving, but he's also holy and just. Um, It makes me think of my grandma felons. It's my dad's mom. And uh, she had a lot of great uh, attributes, and she uh, was a strong Christian. She loved her two kids, Sherry and Steve. Steve's my dad, a lot. And over the years, what I noticed is that Sherry and Steve must have never done anything wrong in their entire lives. Because every story she told about Sherry and Steve, they were the heroes of the story. It was always the other person's fault. They were always picking on my kids. They always made the right decisions. I've talked to my dad about some of these stories, and he was not an angel, just like I'm not an angel either, right? But so I I admired my grandma's love, but there was also something that was just a little bit disingenuous about it, right? Because she just kind of ignored some stuff. God can't do that. He gets it right all the time. He's not like a a loving grandmother who just ignores things. In his love, he took care of things. And so the greatest hope that we have for eternity and for the last day is this, that on the last day that Jesus, our next villain, Jesus' perfection will cover our imperfection. So that even though we are not in the perfect group on our own, we're there because the Father doesn't see our sin. Most of you know this, but some of you don't. That's why on a baptismal day, a child, a baby, even an adult, will wear white. If it's a baby, oftentimes that robe covers the entire body except the head. It's symbolic. Centuries of symbolism of these passages that talk about how Christ's sacrifice, his righteousness, covers us. John 17, Jesus says, this is eternal life. This is how you get eternal life. This is how you have hope for the future, that you may know, that they may know you, Jesus, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, as you think of the last day, I don't want you to concentrate on the when, although you have questions about it. I do too. I don't want you to concentrate on the how and what's all going to happen and what about the famines and the earthquakes and all of that. Yes, there's going to be destruction on the last day after it's over. A new world, a new heaven is going to be created. Don't need to worry about it. But instead, I want you to concentrate on the who, that they may know you, Jesus. And may our hearts and our minds be focused there. So here's a a little bit of a, a, a takeaway for you today. At least as long as I can remember, which isn't probably that long in the course of history, but in my lifetime, I feel like in our country specifically, there is more fear and more anger amongst Americans than ever before. And you have your own theories and reasons, I'm sure, as to why that is, and we're not going to get into all of that. But what I will say is that it would seem to me that some of the worst when it comes to fear and anger are Christians. Maybe not the worst, but a lot of times no better. Here's what Jesus said in the book of Matthew. He wrote, he says, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. You see, God doesn't want us to stick our heads in the sand and to think and pretend like everything is perfect. And the Lord doesn't want us to, you know, not do our part and just do nothing as Maybe there are certain things in our world or our country that are going the wrong way. He wants us to make a difference, but you know what he wants in here? To not be alarmed. To have peace and confidence, because when we look to the future, whether it be of our country, God never promised it'll be here forever. I hope it is. When it is, whether it be to the end of the world, which some people think we're near. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it, Jesus said, that you are not alarmed. Our last fill-in. As you think of the future, don't be afraid. Just be ready. Don't be afraid. Be ready. You know, the the command to not be afraid is something that comes up quite a bit in the Bible. And I'm not sure exactly the expression that is used or the tone of voice when the angels come down and say, do not be afraid. But here's what I do know, is that if there's a big storm, okay, and little kids in your home come to you and they're afraid, how good does it help to just look at them and say, do not be afraid? (laughs) That doesn't do anything, does it? There's got to be something behind it. You know, we had a big storm on Tuesday, and I know some of you are afraid, probably. You won't admit it, but I know Ben Burke was afraid. <laughs> what if you knew the storm wasn't going to touch you? What if you knew ahead of time that your house was going to be fine, no flooding, no, no, nothing? You're going to be totally fine. Guess what happens? fear goes away. The Father is telling you today, you're going to be fine. It might get worse before it gets better. There's things that are not perfect in this world, but you're going to be fine because someday hope is going to return like a group of thunderbirds and the ground is going to shake and the trumpets are going to sound and the angels are going to come before Him and behind Him and it is going to be your signal that hope is here hope has come hope has come for you so do not be afraid just be ready keep the Lord near muse on Him train yourself that when things happen That instead of allowing yourself to think the worst or to get so emotionally worried and stressed that your hearts and minds return to the simple truth that Jesus lives, he's sitting on the throne and you're going to be okay. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the sure confidence that we have in eternity because the grave could not hold your son, our savior. And because he lives, not because of anything we do, not because of a list of a resume that we have, but because he lives, because he did the work, we get to be in heaven with you forever. And so come what may, whatever it is, whether it's in our country, whether it's in our world, whether it's in our personal lives, yes, difficulties happen the way we never Pray all this in Jesus' name.